Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 69? Let's look at it together. It's a, it's a psalm written by an extraordinarily distressed individual. It is in the superscript attributed to David. And we know that David had all kinds of stressful situations in his life. Not only that, the 69th Psalm is a messianic psalm, and you'll see as we go through the events that David was suffering are also events like Christ suffered. We'll see that as we go through the psalm, God willing. The 69th Psalm, of course, the Psalms, the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament. The second most quoted Psalm is the 69th Psalm in the, uh, in the New Testament. So let's look at this distressed individual first. He he cries for help. Shushanim. Maybe yours says upon the lilies or something like that. Uh, scholars really wrestle over what that really means, but the general belief through the ages has been that it's, uh, it's something that in the end brings comfort and uh, pleasantries into the life of a person who considers the lilies and, and absorbs into his, into his life all that the lilies can give. Save me, Elohim, for the waters have come up to my soul. I sink in deep mire. There is no place to stand. I have come into deep waters where the current has swept me away. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Mighty are those who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully or, or being my enemies by deception. Though I have stolen nothing, still I must return it. Let's, let's consider it from a prophetic standpoint. Psalm 22 prophesies the death of Christ. Psalm 69, the life of Christ up to his, up to his death in prophecy. Surrounded by enemies that have no cause to hate him. We've, we're pretty fresh studying this stuff in Luke. And I think that uh, we know how Christ has been mistreated. He only went about doing good. But those who, who sensed that he was going to take power and authority away from them uh, came heavily against him and it created strange alliances uh, in, in the time of Christ. Sects, sectarian groups within Judaism those groups which normally despised each other became allies in opposing Christ. And this alliance 
intensified until finally Christ was crucified and they accomplished their task. So going through his life, of course, Christ was a man of sorrows. It was prophesied that he would be a man of, of sorrows. As he approaches the cross, he weeps. We've already seen in Luke twice where he wept over Jerusalem and cried out before the Lord. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. You see, the father is working out his purpose all the way through the life, the earthly life of the son. So like David experienced undeserved hatred and people who wrongfully used him, spoke against him, enemies by deception, Christ is the same way. Then the last line here, though I have stolen nothing, still I must return it. It reminds us of the truth that even though Christ was sinless, and even though Christ had committed no sin in his life, nor harbored sin, he didn't have a sin nature, you know, being the virgin-born Christ of God, still... He would assume the responsibility to pay for what he had not done. Thank God he did. So what he's doing, he's doing for me. The things that he pays back, the things that he returns, the things that he pays for, the things that I've done and will do until my time of glorification. So... The experiences of David are again reflected in the life of David in certain circumstances are prophesied in the life of Christ. Now he calls himself a foolish man. Elohim, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Of course, Christ had no sins. But in the same sense, of what we just previously said, the father would know the the pertinent purpose of laying the sins of his own upon the son. So nothing hidden. Matter of fact, it's, it's Isaiah, what, 52 and 53? Uh, the Lord saw what the humbled servant was going through, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to punish him. So none of this is hidden from the Father. Do not let those who hope for you be ashamed or be shamed through me. O Lord God of hosts or Lord of armies, let those who seek you not be ashamed through me, God of Israel. 
For I've borne reproach for your sake. Shame has covered my face. I was a stranger to my brothers and a sojourner to the children of my mother. We all remember, of course, we all know the scriptural account of how his, his brethren um, forsook him, they, his brothers, and uh, seemed to side with everybody else that, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was, was crazy. All part of the reproach that he bears, but that no one, but that no one through Christ would be ashamed. In other words, our only hope is through the Christ of God. And if someone is shamed through him, then of course they're none of his. A stranger to his brothers, bearing reproach. For the sake of God, taking shame and humiliation upon himself. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 2 that, that uh, he laid aside his glory and he took up the form of a man and died a death, even the death of the cross, which of course is an ignominious, shameful death. And yet Christ died that death. All of the shame, humiliation, and reproach that one could imagine came down upon Jesus of Nazareth. And in the same way in his life, of course, not in the same manner, fashion, or for the same reason, David the king suffered in much the same way. Because zeal for your house has consumed me and the taunts of those who taught you have fallen upon me. The taunts that Christ suffered. He said he could, he said he could save others, but he can't save himself. If you're God, come down off of that cross. The taunts of Christ are the same thing as taunting, of course. Taunting a zeal for your house has consumed me. If you reflect upon our study in Luke, the, uh, the intensity of the attempt or the purpose or the plan or the conspiracy to kill Jesus really began after he came in and on Palm Sunday, and so many people honored him as, as the Christ. And then, and Christ did not deny that he was Christ. And then goes to the temple and casts out the money changers and gives his stinging rebuke of what the temple and its leaders had become. So in our study in the Gospel of Luke, for example, and of course it's in the other Gospels as well, you see that from there on, these, these leaders of Israel would not stop until Jesus was crucified. It all started with Jesus' zeal for the temple, for the house of God. So... This is when they begin to taunt him. You know, they, they said he was of the devil and all these other things. Uh, 
And when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my shame. I made sackcloth my raiment and I became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate speak against me and I'm the song of drunkards. The experience of David becoming a laughing stock in the minds of the baser element of society is a prophecy of what happened to Christ in the time of his passion uh, when he was led out of the garden and then all the horrible things that, uh, that happened to him. There's, it seems that in all of history, a certain element of society takes joy in making fun of and demeaning those who are in authority. Sometimes they deserve it. (laughs) But in the case of David and, of course, in the case of Christ, all of this was by deception and by lies and by conspiracy from those who would not have that person rule over them. It was David's case, and in the case of Christ, the religious leaders essentially had declared that they would not submit to grace. They would not reject self-righteousness, and they would not receive for all that he had done, for all the miracles and For all the proofs and for all of the fulfilled prophecies, they simply would not receive Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so they speak against him. And this whole thing crescendos. It's it's a feeding frenzy among the crowds when at last the pathetic image of the beaten Christ is presented to the crowds and they cry out for Barabbas. So if they were given the same opportunity in the day of David, they would have done the same thing to David. So the psalmist gives a cry for deliverance. But as for me, my prayer is to you, Yahweh, in a pleasing time. We're all guilty of warning things instantly, quickly. That's why they have a drive through window at McDonald's and other places. And don't tell me that you don't get frustrated if you have to sit there three minutes. <laughs> I was, I figured this out. I was at a turn light today in Hartzell. I was in my small camper taking Pat and Emmett to lunch. Emmett, for some reason, loves to ride in that thing. So I'm at Walgreens and I'm in the left turn to go through Hartzell, take them back and come back to the church. The light changed and immediately I took off. 
But before my foot, honestly, and I have pretty fast feet, before my foot could go from the brake to the pedal, the guy behind me came down on his horn. You know, like, like I'm supposed to be transported somewhere and he is too. Let me tell you how that contrasts with this statement. In it's my verse 14, it's what, your verse uh, 13, I guess. My prayer is to you, Yahweh. And the content of this prayer will be made acceptable to you in the time that pleases you. We pray for things that seem to be dire needs. Right then. We need it. And, and maybe honestly we think sincerely in our hearts, this this got to happen now. And it doesn't happen. Well, that's because it's not in the pleasing time. It's not, it's not according to the pleasure of Yahweh. It's not time for him to do what he wants to do with regard to your request. So this is, this is a great way to pray, Lord. I know that the Holy Spirit is going to take this prayer and make it what it ought to be. And finally, it's going to make its way to that big golden bowl, one of the seven. And it is going to ascend into your nostrils as a sweet-smelling savor. I know that when this prayer goes from my heart and my mouth into your heaven, it will be according to the way that you want it to be. And this is what we have to have in our hearts. In the course of time, God makes us realize in various ways that even though he may have said no, he makes us see that it was the best answer he could have given us. I'll tell you. He said no to me more times than he said yes. And I could stand here for the rest of the week and tell you all of the no's that came from God were the best things that ever happened to me. So it's in his time according to his pleasure, as acceptable to him. Elohim, hear me in your abundant covenant love or your abundant merciful faithfulness uh, to me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and do not let me sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and from the deep waters. Do not let the flood overflow me, nor let the flood water swallow me up and let the deep pit close its mouth. Over me. Of course, the picture, the, the analogy is someone who's in a flood and the mud comes in first and he can't move and he's trying to move and stuck in the mud, the water begins to build up around him and it's getting deeper and deeper. And this is the trouble that David finds himself in. And he says, he cries out to God, deliver me from this. Even the Lord Christ cried, if it be the Father's will to let the cup pass. None of us will ever know. None of us will ever know. The emotional state of the Son of God in the time of his passion When the father turned his back 
and the sin begin to fill his life. Something he never experienced, never felt. Something that was just bringing the floodwaters up. I, you know, I've, I'm claustrophobic enough without ever finding myself in some sort of cubicle where the water is rising. That, and your feet are stuck. That must be a bad feeling. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like that would be a bad feeling. That's the feeling that the psalmist is relating to us here. Don't let this thing overwhelm me and overflow me and swallow me up. Hear me, Yahweh, for your covenant love or your covenant faithfulness is good. According to your abundant mercies, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I'm in trouble. Hasten to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem it because of my enemies. Deliver me. The nature of the problem, the source of the problem, the set of circumstances that caused the psalmist to cry out in this prayer are not given to us. In the infinite wisdom of God, it's a set of circumstances that we can understand in our own lives from from time to time. I'm in trouble. Hurry up and answer me. Draw near to my soul. Deliver me because of my enemies. So the psalmist takes this reflection upon himself. You know my reproach, my shame, my disgrace. All of my adversaries are before you. Humiliation has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. I looked for sympathy. There was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They put gall into my food. And for my thirst, they give me vinegar to drink. Of course, you, rec- you recognize that as what happened on the cross of Christ. You have to recognize that the reproach of 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 of, of, of the sins of God's people. All these are falling down on Christ. The ones who were wanting him dead were in the presence of God. God knew exactly, the Father knew exactly what was going on. A broken heart, full of heaviness. Now that, that phrase, full of heaviness, is a, it can be translated, I was, I was filled with sickness. It's a weakness. It's a, it's a, it's a personal weakness that, uh, that, that, that is reflected in a person who is so, so sick or so ill. He has no strength for himself. I looked for sympathy. Well, there was none. None, was there to, none were there to comfort me. Of course, we knew all but John forsook Christ. Some of the women were there at the foot of the cross. He asked for a drink and they gave him this kind of drink. David cries out for this sympathy, but he finds himself alone. He has no friends. And when he tries something to sweeten his life, to comfort him, all that he gets from people are those things that are bitter and even poisonous. So there's a cry for judgment. 
Let their table before them become a trap and their well-being become a snare or their peace. Let their eyes become dark so that they cannot see. Constantly cause their loins to shake. Pour out your fury upon them and may your burning wrath overtake them. Let their dwelling be desolate and let no one live in their tents. Well, as we look at this and we think of the prophetic nature of it with regard to Christ, the Messiah, the sky was darkened, the earth shook, the fury of God came, the veil of the temple was torn in half, the temple was left desolate, and by the time 70 AD comes along, no one among the Jews is left to live in the houses, in the tents, in the dwellings, in the abodes where they lived. This judgment is what David calls down for his enemies as well. For you, those whom you struck down, they persecuted them. They talked about the pain of those whom you wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let them not come into your righteousness. Now, this is an interesting phraseology here. Because verse, the next verse says, let them be blotted from the book of the living. Let them not be inscribed with the righteous. This is a... This, this is a royal court discussion. David's the king. David would be the supreme court. Everything that was difficult for the lower courts to settle would finally be appealed to the king in a kingdom. So the time could come where these who had been so cruel and mean would cry out for some kind of justice and here's the prayer that they want to be vindicated without repentance is an iniquity that is added upon their iniquity. So don't let them come into your righteousness. That is your righteousness of government or don't let them wiggle into a place where they can say we thought we were doing the right thing. That's not an argument. Let them be blotted from the book of the living and let them not be inscribed with the righteous as though they've been vindicated. Now there's a book of life and there's the book of the living. The psalmist we've studied some time ago, there's a book of tears that's being recorded. Books, the end of it all, the books were open. The book of the living, according the way the the way the the way the language is constructed, it speaks of those who are presently alive. Okay, for example, I'm I'm in a census. I'm I'm alive. I live, and I'm counted. Among the living. 
And proof of it is that I get tax statements. I got some on my property here not long ago. I'm alive. I have these responsibilities. So wherever these books are kept, probably I don't know where they're kept. They have me listed there. And when one begins to receive Social Security, for example, and we know this from what we go through with our parents, as long as they're in the book of the living, they can get that payment. But when they die, you have a death certificate. You're removed from the book of the living. You're not in the book of the living anymore. So, Being blotted out from the book of the living, a death certificate having been issued for me. Don't let somebody come along and put me back in some sort of status other than the status to which I belong, which is a condemned traitor. Guilty of of treason. This is what the psalmist is saying here. Don't let it happen in my kingdom that these people can come back around and convince people that they thought they were doing the right thing. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the book that's spoken of here is the book of the living. In other words... Yahweh, kill them. Let their lives be taken from them so that the poison that exudes from their lives cannot continue in my kingdom. And don't let it ever be worked out in any way that anybody can think that they really thought they were doing the right thing. Don't ever let them appear in any way to be vindicated For what they've done to me. So in the language, this is is what uh, is being addressed by the psalmist in his prayer to the Lord, to Yahweh. So he cries for salvation. I'm humble, I'm weak, I'm poor, and I am in pain. Let your salvation, Elohim, set me on high. I will praise the name of Elohim with song. I shall magnify him with a thanksgiving offering. It will please Yahweh more than an ox or a young bull that is mature with horns and hooves. My song, my praise, the thank offering that I give from my heart. A sincere and pure heart of worship and thanksgiving. Those things mean more to Yahweh. Than the, than the most expensive animal that could be offered. The humble will see and rejoice. You who seek Elohim and your hearts will remain alive. For Yahweh hearkens to the needy and he does not despise his prisoners. Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
that's that's step one of a of a repentant heart. How does how does someone receive the blessing of God? He starts out with an impoverished spirit. He has nothing within himself that can save himself. Ptokos, tokas is the Greek word there for in the New Testament for poverty or for being poor. Abject poverty. So absolutely helpless and needy that the person has no way to make anything for himself. There is no way he can provide for himself. Absolutely impoverished with no hope unless someone does something for him. This is the idea in, in, this, in my verse 34 here. For Yahweh hearkens to the needy, the one who really feels the need. Yahweh hears and he doesn't despise those whom he has captured. Those who he is. So the psalm ends in a call for praise. Heaven and earth will praise him. The seas and everything that moves therein. For Elohim will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. And the seed of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell therein. Again, a prophecy from David, certainly befitting of the Christ of God, who in his glorious second coming will establish the kingdom, place himself upon Zion, build the cities of Judah, that the people of God may come and dwell therein. And those who inherit these things will love his name, and ever be close to him. Well, we'll stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.